Well, if you look up the definition of confirmation bias, you'll notice that I was right all along. <laughs> As someone once famously said, I was only wrong once, and that was when I thought I was wrong, but I was actually right. Okay. <laughs> yes, yes. Mark, good morning. Another week. It goes so fast. It's incredible. It's podcast Tuesday. Good morning, everybody. We were just chatting the other day. <laughs> Mark, I don't know whether you get caught up by negative feelings, but I get caught up by negative feelings all the time. I always think things are going to end up worse than they do end up. And I was incredibly pleased to see an article, actually it was in the New Yorker, about the fact that last October, the Wall Street Journal surveyed 60 leading forecasters, 60, right? And 65% of them said that there was definitely going to be a recession this year. Now, now it turns out that it's actually, this is in the States, right? Yeah. It turns out there's not going to be a recession. And I think that the assumptions behind it are very interesting. You know, statistics are on the side of the naysayers, of the people who in the survey said that there was going to be a recession, because when interest rates start going up, yeah. they tend to overshoot. And historically, there's always been a recession after a set of interest rate increases. But it turns out that this time it's not going to happen. Well, I think the problem is that forecasters' remuneration is not outcome-based. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> I think they paid to forecast, not to judge. Okay, And so now, the only difference, I'm told, between us and the rest of the animal kingdom is our power of anticipation, is that we can anticipate and extrapolate whereas other animals live in the present. I can extrapolate the tiniest problem into a global thermonuclear war, if I put my mind to it. Yes. Okay, I'm a natural, what's the worst case scenario? I, I don't think statistics teaches us that statistics teaches us anything you know, or something. The, the, the past is no longer a predictor of the future. There are so many structural changes in what constitutes economic activity and what constitutes the causes of growth yep. that we are not accustomed to. That I, It's a mug's game, but there's still a lot of people making a hell of a lot of living out of it. You know the joke, right, about confirmation bias? No, you tell me. So I know you're going to tell me. I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you look up the definition of confirmation bias, You'll notice that I was right all along. <laughs> As someone once famously said, I was only wrong once. And that was when I thought I was wrong, but I was actually right. Okay. <laughs> it is, it is. I was reading another article by Johan Fourie. He's a very good economist from Stellenbosch University. He was talking about different kinds of bias. There's a kind of memory bias. Right. Selective memory. Oh. And there is an anticipation bias. Yeah, because when you're thinking about the past, the good things, you know, sort of stand out more prominently. When you're thinking about the future, the dangers stand out more prominently. That's just how human beings are configured. You know, you can sort of see that in economic analysis. It has historically, I think, tended to underestimate global growth. And I saw yesterday that even the euro economy is now back in growth. So that's a good thing. There are lots of things that weigh in favor of momentum. Okay. I mean, just like increasing population, increasing spending, increasing consumerism, all of those kinds of things. Yeah. I think the challenge for economists is not trying to project the next growth figure. I think the next big challenge, the valuable challenge, is to predict the next causes, not the outcomes. Could we have predicted what a big role technology would play in economic activity? Could we have predicted what a big role social media would have played in? And so on. All of these new 
sources of economic activity, if not value. Yeah. That's the challenge. And if you get that right, whether you forecast it or not, you'll make a lot of money. And that's valuable. Yes. But I just, I think one shouldn't read too many of these things, eh? All right, so so now let's bring it all back home. Over the weekend, the EFF turned 10. They had an absolutely massive gathering at FNB Stadium. Hell of a party. Yeah. I mean, it really was extraordinary. It was impressive, you know. But then they also sort of jumped up and sang, you know, kill the boy. You know, it's just, oh, God. In some ways, I think it's kind of boring, you know, because it was obviously designed to rile the base. Yeah. This is the sort of modern technique of politics. Just like pump up your base. Yeah. And in fact, the responses have been absolutely predictable. But I also do think as, you know, as a sort of like half member of the Jewish fraternity, you know, the (laughs) people calling for sections of the population to be eliminated, all moving in unison, in uniforms, well, that sort of reminds you of that other thing, you know, that we, you know, yeah. it's, uh, it's not good. I don't think there's <laughs> another political party that could get a rally that size going. Now, how they got it going is, is another thing. I've come to the conclusion that we can't take too seriously the utterances of politicians, particularly when they have a mic in their hands. Okay. And I, I really mean that, too. Yes. You know, now because it seems to me they have immunity from reproach. All consequence. Never mind consequences for action. Consequences for speeches are zero. I mean, even the president says he encourages us to go back to the militancy of the ANC Youth League. And then Julia sings his well-worn out song. And although the arguments came out in abundance, they're equally facile as his comments are. Okay. I'm just over it, man. I mean, one cannot take them seriously. That's the bottom line, is they say whatever is a crowd pleaser, and I'm kind of bored by it all because no one is talking to the circumstances of our country. They're talking politics vis-a-vis one another. It's a competition of a group of people or groups of people, all who think they are right, criticizing each other. And no one's in the office. No one's doing any work. Okay. And in the meantime, I can get quite depressed. No, no, no. It's true. I mean, it relates to your earlier point about social media, yeah. the immunity that politicians feel and their ability to rile the base. Yeah. You know, and you can sort of see this in America too. To me, it's just extraordinary that Donald Trump is now facing, what, four different separate criminal charges is the leading contender for the Republican Party yeah. by a country mile, a country mile. By a huge margin. I mean, it's incredible. He's like got 54% for the nomination and the Santos who's next has got 17. Right. He, Trump scores 70% on leadership. The Santos scores 22%. And in fact, his criminal charges are directly correlated to the increase in his popularity. So <laughs> I've decided that's a trend. Okay, so, so now when you want to enter politics, you don't go, where's your CV? Yeah. You go, where's your CR? Not to confuse that with another acronym, but where's your criminal record? If you want to be in politics, can you show us at least a semblance of a criminal record? Because, you know, how else would we let you in amongst us who already got that? Should we take them seriously, Tim? That's the real question. Should we give a damn who's in charge? Really? Or should we just get on with our business? You know, on that topic, last week, one of the most interesting things was about the people who are in the office. This is CEOs of South Africa. 115 CEOs signed a pledge to work with government on specific 
interventions in the economy where, you know, business can make a positive contribution. Yeah. What's your feeling about this? Mark, you've been in this position before. Would you have signed the pledge? I mean, I would have. Of course I would sign the pledge. And I believe the president's going to meet with that body of CEOs. Yeah, they're meeting today. But we've had these meetings before. We've had Invest South Africa. We've had all of these kind of initiatives. And they've all, to be honest, come to naught other than a confirmation of existing plans. And I wish them well, by the way. You know, But I think we're talking to the wrong people. CEOs don't own the capital. They manage the capital. And they don't have the discretion to apply it. Right. Okay. So within limits. Okay. And so if you're the CEO of a major bank, you don't own the capital. Okay. You administer the capital. And I'm not saying that in a derogatory way. These are challenging things to do. But what we really need to do is have an engagement between the owners of capital and the state, not between the managers of either. Yes. Okay. In fact, I'm aware of some discussions like that that are taking place between what I might describe as the real owners of capital, both local and international, and how they're engaging. And I think, to be honest, that's the only weapon we've got as business. The weapon we've got is not our decision-making power as CEOs. The weapon we've got is, if you like, a challenge with loaded capital. And you sit across the table and you say, we have capital that will do this if you do that. Yes. And that's how we will begin to see functional finance, partnership, hopefully some of them. Like we mentioned last week, this deal with Transit and, and Philippines. Okay, that is real capital coming together in an agreement. And then we can appoint professionals to manage it. So wish them well, but we've had a lot of false starts. When I read that press release, you know, I'm cynical, right? I'm a journalist. I can be cynical. I should be cynical. Yeah. I think the initiative is interesting and worthwhile, and I'm so glad they're doing it. And I also think it's not good enough. <laughs> the, um, when, I, when I read the press release, it had this phrase where they spoke of joint working groups. No, man. Now, <laughs> can I just tell you, joint working groups, if ever there was a phrase that, you know, that signifies procrastination, postponement, defensiveness, you know, lack of a clear decision-making, lack of uh, accountability and responsibility, it would be the phrase joint working group. <laughs> the bottom line is that working groups don't work. Okay. <laughs> you know, I think, first of all, the capital needs to be distilled. And here's a pile of capital. Government, will you match it? Fine. Now we've got 10 marbles of ours and 10 marbles of yours. Let's jointly decide what we're going to do about it. And we'll say no unless it meets these conditions. And you'll say no unless it meets these conditions. Let's find that common purpose and put the capital to work. And when we do that, foreign capital will come, which is the real source of growth in my view, because, you know, capital that can't leave. Yes. Anyway, I wish them well. I hope it's not another talk show. I think the number of work streams that have been put into place in the last four or five years is, is well over 100. And the number of results is, so far, including the next one, <laughs> zero. Yeah, well, that's very interesting. That's fascinating. You know, going back to the economy and the tools that are available for us to make change, I was reading an interesting article about the tipping effect of mortgage rates. There is, particularly now in the United States, a recognized tipping point which is being approached where if the mortgage rates go beyond that point, right, then holders turn into sellers okay, of housing because the cost of borrowing is too high and the yield of investing is too attractive. And it's a very interesting dynamic in managing the economy, just using this blunt tool called interest rates. And it's fascinating to me how many consequential impacts it has on supply and demand and growth and all of those kinds of things. 
And I think here in South Africa, we get quietly comfortable with a very significant increase in, in interest rates that we've had over the last couple of years, you know, in percentage terms. There is. And that has impacted the housing market, impacted the attractiveness of leverage, impacted the desire to invest. We're managing inflation, sure, but what's the capital account cost of all of that? I don't know. And I think we need to get a little more sophisticated and focused in our medicine. I, I was watching in fascination a thing called Click on the BBC where there's a new proton bombardment treatment, I'm being rough and ready here, right. called FLASH, which singles out the cancer cell and bombards it with protons and kills just that cell without any consequential damage to the healthy tissues which surround it, which is one of the serious issues to be dealt with in, in radiotherapy. That's what we need. We need to go like, where's the problem and fix it. I mean, I, I read again, the consequence of coal demand and the impact that that has on our roads because we don't have a rail system. That's a specific problem that needs to be managed, not by macroeconomic variables being managed, but by going into the industry where the flaws exist and fixing it. Yes. Am I getting too excited for a Tuesday? It's only Tuesday. Okay? <laughs> I mean, one of the things about interest rate, the degree of interest rate increases over the past year around the world yeah. has been very aggressive and more or less the same, right? Yeah. But you know, it is interesting. In South Africa, there's really no such thing as a fixed mortgage on a property. Fixed rate mortgage, yeah. yeah. But actually, it turns out that, you know, one of the reasons why the very aggressive interest rate increases haven't hurt the US economy as much as expected is that, you know, a lot of people dodge them because they have fixed rate mortgages. No. Yeah. Yeah. So it has less of a negative effect on the economy in the States than it does here. I also think, although it seems like the South African economy doesn't you know, respond too badly to interest rate increases, I do think over the long term, it has to affect your aggregate level of economic production overall, right? It does make a difference. It would, over the long term, be consequential. It affects your appetite for risk. And yeah. I mean, the whole concept of limited liability in companies was introduced so that people would take risk that wouldn't destroy them personally because you could have, you know, this contained legal entity that could go bust if it didn't work out. Right. And that encouraged leverage and sometimes it goes too far and sometimes it's not far enough. But if you get to a point where it's impossible to imagine an asset that could yield a significant return beyond the cost of debt, right. then the whole world starts grinding to a halt and you need only pure equity to survive in that world. And that just isn't available to the general new growing economy. Yeah. It's not bankable. Anyway, Tim, have you got any numbers this week? I, 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 ha I have some theoretical numbers. Oh, nothing. <laughs> well, that's the, that's a number. Is your number just a big fat zero for this week? I mean, is that how much effort you're putting into this here podcast? Well, eh? Are you the owner in our podcast? Are you? Eh? <laughs> all right. All right. All right. What, you've obviously got numbers. I tell you my favorite number. Because you're... Because you're, you're, you're. My favorite number this week is that Adeline Creel turned 68. Why is that your favorite number? Well, because she's older than me and she was Miss World. Okay, have a nice day. <laughs> I mean, so, uh, so the only thing that my school became famous for is that we won the national honors in the cadet orchestra, in the cadet band and the, and the platoon in the same year. And I remember uh, one of the local competitions was at the Word School Help McCarr in Whitbank. And I find myself sitting next to one Annaline girl wow. who was a student there. And little, okay. and I was, I don't know, 16 or something. 
And I didn't even so much to say hello to her, as terrified as we were in those days of, <laughs> yes, of, yes. of such engagements. But anyway, she's 68, and she was quite a controversial but unusual Miss World, and we've had Miss Universe since then. So that's an interesting number. Perhaps the hottest number, though, moving away from Anneline, right. is these temperatures, man. 133 or 56 degrees Celsius. That is, you can catch a tan. Eh? You could actually bry yourself. This temperature stuff is, is pretty hectic, eh? Yep. And then the last number I've got to you is that I found out that there are some two and a half million species of insects in the Amazon. Okay. Take spray if you go into the Amazon. Take spray, okay, because you are going to get eaten alive, and it's unlikely to be an anaconda that gets you. Okay, the most dangerous animals in the world are the smallest. Okay, that's all I've got for you in numbers. I'll tell you another interesting thing that I've found. No, go ahead. Someone was comparing the dangers of the deep sea, you know, the Titanic submarine disaster, oh, yes. to the dangers of space, and there's one common factor between the two which makes them dangerous and exciting and adventurous. And what is that? And come on, my turn to ask you a question. Well, uh, you can't breathe. You see, you've got matric. I knew there was something <laughs> in there. Okay. <laughs> All right, that'll be for now. Okay. <laughs> See you next week. Thanks, Mark. Speak next week. Ciao, ciao. Cheers, guys. This show is part of the Africa Podcast Network. The biggest pod, pod network on the continent. For sales inquiries, please, please contact, contact us at info at africapodcastnetwork.com.